Welcome to the EMS on the Mountain podcast, a show for those interested in austere and wilderness medicine. This podcast provides insight into the unique aspects and challenges of bringing modern EMS into wilderness and austere environments. All right, and we're back. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of EMS on the Mountain. Uh, today, it's myself and, as usual, my partner, Mike. And today, we're joined by Mr. Todd Schimmelfennig. He's a longtime Knowles instructor. Uh, you could say he's one of the near OG founders of the organization, has been there with them almost since the beginning. And we're going to discuss a lot of, we'll say, where the current state of wellness first responder, wellness first aid courses are, and, and how that all integrates into the grander scheme of care in the uh, backcountry. Todd, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you started, what your background is, and, and how you got involved in wilderness medicine. Okay. Uh, let's see. Background. Well, I started working for Knowles in 73 as a field instructor, and I've worked pretty much straight through for the school, field courses through the years, a number of administrative positions. I was the Rocky Mountain School Director for a while, the Risk Management Director for a while. I fit boots for a while all sorts of different jobs. My last 20 years, I was the curriculum director for Knowles Wilderness Medicine. And I have this, this parallel career where back in 74, I think it was, I started riding ambulance. And I have this career of EMS, volunteer EMS in the community here, search and rescue experience. And I guess it was uh, in 78, Knowles finally decided that the field instructors all needed a first aid credential. And I was around and I have this EMS career. I'm a practicing EMT. I'm a Knowles field instructor. I'm the guy who got lucky and started teaching the courses. And I did training for Knowles field instructors through the 80s, through the early 90s, running EMT courses, running first responder courses, and then uh, started teaching more public courses when Knowles merged with the Wilderness Medicine Institute in the late 90s. And then I got engaged in training more on the public side and became the curriculum director. But I just happened to be lucky. I had this parallel career where I was doing EMS stuff and I would work and people were like, oh, you must be the expert. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That happens often. We were talking just before we hit the record button. So Todd's being a little, he's being a little modest. Todd's been a, a medic level provider. He's, he holds an EMTI certification. For those that are not familiar with that, that is actually a deprecated standard at the national level with the national registry now, but it was essentially what Sean, it was around for what, almost 30 years. It was a, it was an attempt to provide yeah, advanced level care for folks yeah. without, yeah, without having to have every provider go through the multiple hundreds of hours of paramedic education. So Todd's, Todd's not just quote unquote an EMT. And I don't mean that to say EMTs are just EMTs. What I mean is when Todd says he's an EMT, he's done a lot of ALS type work for a long, long time, much longer than I've been in the game since I was born in 1978. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but Todd's been around a long time. So we're, we're really kind of curious to get his opinion on both the medicine side and the wilderness side. Uh, in particular, for those of you that have listened to our podcast, and, and here comes the longstanding joke, all four of you, Sean and I have been advocating for a clear delineation, a separation between the concept of being prepared for the unexpected circumstances, i.e. the career fields that include, I won't even say ski patrol, but, but uh, ski instructors, backcountry hiking instructors, climbing instructors, 
heliskiing providers, those folks, their primary job is not to go into the backcountry and provide medical care. However, they could often find themselves in a situation where they have a client or they come upon someone that is in need of care. And that is certainly a skill set that we advocate for. And we believe everyone should be capable of performing a level of care. And then really the side of the world that I'll say Sean and I spend most of our time in now, which is the response side, right? Once someone has been identified as being in serious need of care, Sean and I are spend a lot of our time thinking about trying to improve upon and advocating for the specialized skill set that is more extended care as a medic, providing uh, care that would be much longer than a standard patient contact on a transport unit. For somebody in the backcountry where typically you have to extricate them using human power as opposed to using machines like driving an ambulance to the hospital. So first, Todd, I want to ask a little bit about your opinion on the bifurcation and do we get it right? <laughs> Are we right? Are we wrong? <laughs> oh, I, I think you get it right. I think there's actually a, maybe a third set in there, which is the, just a straight recreation person. And uh, we, we train a lot of and a lot of the Woodlands Medicine Schools really train recreation level people, people who just go hiking, camping, whatever want some training, they want wilderness first aid, maybe they want to step up and take a first responder course. And then, yeah, there's this second subset of uh, the people who work professionally, but they're not medical professionals. And that's not the focus of their job. And they, they need some training. And then there's that separate set of the EMS, SAR, whatever, the dedicated provider, and they need to be squared away before they go out. And uh, yeah, I'm all aboard on that delineation. I would actually almost argue that the professional responder, that third category, could be broken into two subcategories, right? You have, you have the traditional SAR folk, and their job is to go out, find, and extricate. And then you have the extended care sort of folks that typically end up coming on helicopters, right? They, they end up coming in vehicles as close as possible, but they aren't typically involved in the location of the individual. They're involved in the treatment and extrication once they've been found. We've got a, a guy that we know in Colorado. He, he works for a paramedical organization. But if they call and say, guess what? There's a dude in the woods, like they fly him out there and he gets off the helicopter and he's doing the treatment, but he's not, he's not called out to search for the person or locate the person. He's called out for the advanced level care. Mm -hmm. Sean, how do you feel about those categories? Do they about sum up your perspective? I think, yeah, for the most part, they certainly do. I think Todd hits on a couple of good spots that, and this was, you know, when I taught wellness first aid courses for a number of years that, yeah, a lot of those people were the recreational hobbyists who just wanted to be more prepared. And if it was up to me, I'd have every citizen in the country be a wilderness first aid course graduate, just the 16 hour course, just because that it's way better than a Red Cross basic first aid course. They learn much better skills that are more applicable. They at least learn fundamental patient assessments, et cetera. And then, you know, we had those people who worked for various hiking organizations who were hiking or trip leaders out here. We get a lot of, we used to at least get a lot of rafting companies for some of the rivers out here that they would be sending their, their rafting guides to. And of course, we, that's this particular organization I taught with, it was, we taught a lot of Boy Scout groups just because one of their requirements for their high adventure camps is they have to have a minimum number of wilderness first aid certified personnel per number of scouts. So we taught a lot of those. And I'll just say now, uh, Todd sent us a paper that he wrote a few years ago, basically that was advocating that wilderness first responders should be the standard when it comes to, uh, we'll call them those professional personnel who are taking out these trips and these hikes and things like that. And I would definitely agree with him there that anybody that's, if your secondary duty is going to be probably medical care for your group of clients or something to that effect, 
you certainly want the higher level of care available. And I think one of the bigger points he hits in that is the decision-making skills that some of the advanced training comes into play. It's like, does this really need to get evacuated right now? Or is this something that we can handle here and finish this hike normally, maybe get them on the raft and finish up to the next point where we can get them off safely somewhere else? And that's, I think, a big delineation. And I fully support that. And I would even say, depending on where you work in the country or in the world, most of the SAR teams in the U.S. are all volunteer. And I would say that if you're providing first aid to those people you're recovering, rescuing, you should probably be at least a wilderness first responder because most of them don't operate under an EMS license. And so if you have somebody there that's got that higher level of care as a wilderness first responder, I think that should be the minimum of people providing care, even at the SAR team volunteer level. Most of them all have wilderness first aiders, which is a good course, don't get me wrong. But I agree with Todd that the extra time spent managing patients and learning assessments. And, you know, I know when when I did let my EMS certs expire, I became a woofer. The course taught basic vital signs, you know, doing manual blood pressures, et cetera. And that's something that basic wellness first aid students don't get. But it's an excellent skill if you're out there on these trips and you're pretty isolated, being able to trend a good set of vital signs is immensely helpful. And then I would argue then that those are the folks that when we come across incidents that Mike and I have been called out for, it is excellent to come across those people who've already started the patient care, who already have that foundational knowledge and have already started doing some really good work. So I would say that you definitely have it right on that aspect, Todd, and I would advocate that that would, should really become a standard that should be pushed nationally for anybody that's in charge of these programs. It's, it's interesting. We, we started teaching these programs in the late 70s, and as they evolved, early on, we weren't thinking too much about this whole decision-making piece. It was, we were just delivering, you know, the content that you deliver back then. And we didn't even focus that much on patient assessment. And then as we learned more, got more experience, I don't know, started to get a look kind of half smart or something. We're like, this is really all about people getting good information and making a decision because the consequences of those decisions in the back country can be, they can be serious. And back, back in the day when there was no communication, you were making decisions about sending people out of, out of the wilderness to call for help. The help uh, was helicopters came who knows from where. There weren't very many of them. A lot of it was carries, risks to people. So then the decision-making piece became more something we needed to have a foundation for that. So that became the patient assessment system. Get the info. You can't make a decision unless you got good information. And then look at the consequences of your decision. And then look at protocol. We started developing protocols, started thinking about what people were doing. I had the ability to like listen to a lot of Knowles field instructors. They come at, come in and say, okay, you just dealt with that. What were you thinking? How are you handling this? And listening to these lay people. And that helped me come up with ways to word things, to structure things, to help people make these decisions. And I think, yeah, I agree. It's, it should be a standard. I think it basically is for most of the major programs, guiding services, outdoor education now. If they're anywhere deep in the woods, uh, it's a wilderness first responder. Yeah, I would certainly hope so. So I've got about 18 questions that came out of that little bit. First <laughs> off, when I read through your paper, there was, there was a, a reference. And, and I'll, just for our listeners, Todd, if you don't mind, I will put that chapter up. I'll put a link up to it. Sure, that's fine. Uh, for folks to read uh, along with your CV. You've got quite the, uh, quite the background. And I want to make sure people are able to, to read that. The there's a reference in there about nausea and head injuries. 
how would one determine whether or not something is urgent, like from a wilderness perspective? What, what's been the evolution, I'll say, in your time teaching these sort of evaluation skill sets to determine what could be a head bleed and what isn't? Because even in the front country, even in on a medic unit, if somebody says they hit their head and they lost consciousness for a minute, like I'm scooping them up and I'm taking them to a, to a hospital that has a CT scanner so that we can take a look at their head, right? We haven't always had that capability, and I certainly, there are actually ambulances with CT scanners on them, but typically that is not a, a thing that you will find in pretty much any community. So how do we make that decision in the woods, in particular on something like, Timmy hit his head, do we need to fly him or can we wait 9, oh, yeah. 12, 18 hours? Yeah, well, the, the way we worked that was we, we started developing these protocols. We just talked with physicians, local community physicians. We have, we, Knowles has had a physician medical advisor for a long time who had been a field instructor. and. Mm-hmm tried to put together wording that would work and thresholds that would work for these lay providers. Mm -hmm. The thresholds are are very conservative. Now they're informed by a lot of the concussion protocols that have come up in the last decade or so. That's been quite helpful. And it's really, if you followed through our protocol, basically if, if you were unresponsive at all or had altered mental status from the blow to the head, you're coming out. That's, okay. that's the threshold. The urgency at which you come out will depend on what other things we find in that assessment. And if we find uh, really a, a significant change in mental status, the vital signs mm-hmm. that are weird, yeah, you got to go. Those are pretty obvious. The things that are tough for those outdoor leaders is the kid who gets hit in the head. You're not sure whether he lost responsiveness. The information, you weren't there, you didn't witness it. The information's murky. You have to decide whether they hit that threshold or not. And then again, you're, so we build a protocol based on something like that. Okay. So you're following pretty standard science, so to speak. Uh, Does it change at all in the, in the, uh, in the backcountry? It's really easy to say, well, if somebody lost consciousness, they need to go to the hospital, but that's not always possible, right? It's not always, you can't just, oh, Hey, let's, uh, let's call Bob. Let's have him pick him up. Right. Does the program get into education or, or do you have standards for prolonged care for the layperson? Uh, should things get worse? Is that something that Knowles teaches? Well, yeah, but it's pretty, it's basic, it's straightforward for a state. I mean, we're not, it's for this person who may have had the blow to the head, it's sequential evaluations, it's side positioning, keeping them fed, keeping them hydrated, keeping them warm. That's about all you can do as a first aid provider. Your big thing yep. there is the sequential evaluation. Uh, yes. Catch if there's any trends or changes. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, okay. no, that's. And that's, uh, and that's the thing, really, even as an ALS provider for Mike and I, outside of a few pharmaceutical interventions we could provide, really, it's that BLS fundamental care, or as the military start putting it, nursing care, you know, where it's like making sure they're hydrating, making sure they're able to get to the bathroom, making sure they're getting fed. And if they are static and stationary, rotating them so they don't develop those pressure sores and things. And so that's good that those are, are being taught at the woofer level so that people are aware of that. Because... Yeah, as Mike mentioned, like if you're on a pretty extensive, we'll say backcountry hiking or hunting trip, like in Alaska, somewhere deep out in the mountains there, it could be a couple of days before even trucks are able to drive up there and pick you up. So it's, it's good that these are things that are, that are out there and people are learning and they aren't having to go through advanced right. EMS level training courses and things. So that's excellent. Yeah. And it could be, you know, the, the isolation, uh, the remoteness piece is interesting because that is more and more, there's access. You, we can go in and get people. And, uh, we, we, you know, for a long time, I worked in this 
area and we worked in the wilderness here and there was no air support, no helicopters. Now we've got two. We've got a unit that can come in and do a short haul for us. And we have two life flights that serve the area. There's just, there's, there's a lot more access and it changes the whole context of the decision from, okay, I, do I have to decide whether I walk out for three days with this guy or do I decide whether I call this aircraft in and there's all that associated risk and hoo-ha that goes with that. And we have more and more on this, when I wear my SAR hat, we have more and more pressure because of the ability of people to communicate out of the wilderness, uh, yeah. in religious, uh, spots and stuff, a lot more pressure to respond. And we often can get frustrated because we don't necessarily think they're making good decisions on urgency, mm. but we go in and get them. And, uh, well, that, that was actually, I, I had a note here. I was going to ask you how things have changed. I started doing SAR in 2001. Sean had quite a, an extensive background and then joined the organization that I was a member of in 2010. In the 20 years that I've been doing SAR, it's been, I mean, when I started and went to my first search management program, it was laser fish and yeah. markers on maps, right? Yeah, and now it's pencils. laptops and cell phones and hotspots. And yeah. How things changed over the last 30 years and, and has it gotten better or worse? Or that's probably not the right characterization, but how's it different? Well, I mean, I, I started, when I started working in the field with Knowles, no comms. You walked out of the mountains, you found a payphone, you were always supposed to have coins with you. And, and, mo- and we did a lot of carries. We carried people out of the mountains. Now we, we can talk, everybody's got a sat phone. There's a lot more consultation that goes on. Whereas in the early 80s, I was on my own when I was making a decision. Now I can mm-hmm. get a consult if I feel I need it. The, the reach of the helicopters has changed the whole transport scene. Now the carries are shorter. The carries are usually just to an LZ. I mean, Knowles has a, his, in its background, there's courses that did four, six day litter carries mm-hmm. out of remote places. Almost unheard of now. That's changed. Uh, <laughs> but I think at the same time, the, uh, there's, there's a loss of independence. So people mm-hmm. are pushing the button and they expect things from us. And they get angry when we don't deliver them. And what they expect <laughs> is that we're going to come in and fix things really quick. And you guys know yes. this. You're, yeah, 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 no, that's that's why we're laughing because, yeah, it's like you get that call for somebody injured on wherever. And they can't believe it took an hour and a half or two hours for you to get there, even though it took them two hours to get to that same spot themselves. And then wonder why yeah. you can't just magic them off the hill. And it's like, well, what do you mean it's going to take six hours to carry me out of here? And it's like, well, Amen. that's best case scenario if we have enough people show up. I don't and levitate. So, I mean, yeah, so I they try, get very grumpy. I still and, haven't figured it out. Yeah. So, I, think, I think another change is as this practice has evolved, this wilderness medicine, wilderness first responder has evolved through the decades. You know, we've been looking and changing things and trying to find, uh, I had this mantra when I was the curriculum director of what we taught had to be accurate. It had to be relevant and it had to be practical. You had to be able to do it. People would do things sometimes, teach things in, in the classroom, and you'd sit there and go, ah, that's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, it works in the classroom, but it's not going to work in the field. We, uh, you know, what was relevant early on, the first aid training back in the 70s was a lot of trauma, dramatic trauma focus. And it's like, ah, for us, those people don't hang out very long. What we tend to see is we see sore knees, sore ankles, we see wounds, we get wound infections. 
Yep. People needed to learn how to clean those wounds and, and maintain those until they healed. And that wasn't a skill set for a first aider. People needed to know uh, how to not get sick. So they, the whole hygiene angle, hydration, cleaning stuff, uh, and you know, and then we got rid of the stuff. One of the things I've uh, people joke at is sometimes that I've made wilderness medicine boring. You know, you can't cut and suck anymore. <laughs> no, you can't put a thing in somebody's chest. That's not in your skill set. And yeah, that traction splint we used to build, that improvised traction splint, it probably never really worked. So let's get rid of it. <laughs> so I kind of made things boring. What you did, though, is make it practical and real. Uh, it's, it's kind of one of my pet peeves when people start thinking of wilderness medicine is they immediately think about everything I'm going to do, I'm going to build with sticks and duct tape. And it's at a certain point, it gets frustrating when everybody wants to work everything around that. And it's like, like Mike and I, if you've listened to some of our shows, it's like, especially if you're a wellness first responder, you know, that's one of your, your number two duty is going to be providing some care. And if you don't have a couple of Sam splints and a good first aid kit with you, then what did you do wrong? Come on. Uh, yeah. But those are the skills, like what I'm saying that, you know, your average layperson, just recreational hiker that does the 16 hour WIFA course. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you come across somebody or maybe you forgot a, your first aid kit. Those are the skills for them. But yeah, if you're working at the wellness first responder level and above, you should generally be prepared for those things. And improvising things like attraction, especially now when there's, there's at least what, two, three, four different, pretty compact, lightweight things that are out there that if you really need them, you should yep. probably have one of those in your kit and trying to improvise one out of a ski pole or something or long branches is sometimes you're asking for trouble because I've seen those fail in training scenarios, but yeah. Well, so. Yeah. And, and even with the whole splinting thing, that's changed recently because of, uh, so we used to, used to have, you know, wool, you'd have wool jackets, wool sweaters, you'd have thick sleeping pads. You could build a splint out of that stuff. Now yeah. sleeping pads and these these puffy things, they just become nothing when you try to wrap somebody in them. You need to think about that. Uh, no. Yeah. The ultra light little inflatable sleeping pads that yeah. all up to half the size of an algae bottle don't make for good splints. Excellent to sleep they're on. They're yeah. actually not that great to sleep on either. Well, yeah, that's true. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, I like the old foam thick pads that I strap to the bottom of my external uh, frame pack. Like, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'm too old for this ultralight holes in the middle sleeping pad inflating thing. But that's just because I'm right. old. No, and I, I think you bring up a good point, though, Todd, is, is while some of those skills that people thought were awesome back in the day have gone away, it's probably for the better because, A, how often did they ever get used? And the answer is, not very often. And when they did, it probably wasn't appropriate for some of them. I know Mike and I just, we were at a conference and we'd attended a lecture about doing needle chest to decompressions, even at paramedic level. And they found that 90% of the time they weren't even indicated. It's just people were like, oh, I'm not sure. So I put a needle in your chest. And a lot of times with, they've been causing damage to healthy lungs. They've mm -hmm. caused more problems than they've solved. So I think yeah, that was fascinating, right? They're in livers, they're in spleens, yeah. they're in all kinds of places that are not supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so that's what I'm saying is, is you know the evolution of let's build it all to no, let's use some of these lighter weight purpose built items and let's take these things that aren't really realistic out of our curriculum and focus more on like you're saying education about hygiene and no, no, just because you're in the woods doesn't mean you shouldn't wash your hands. You absolutely need to be doing so. Make sure your water's purified. Make sure it's purified correctly, and then. Basic wound management, basic, yeah, basic splinting. That's where it's at. Mm -hmm. I mean, even for Mike and I, that's 90% of our work still is, is always all those fundamentals. It's just, we can also bring some pain management, some other things, but you no, know, yeah, it's the focus on those core foundational aspects that's 
it's really most important. I don't, and for the wellness first responders or wellness first aiders out there, just remember that this, those skills you learn are really the most important. That's what really gets the majority of the work done. Learn them and be good at them. Yeah, yeah we've been thinking a lot recently about a, a concept called a cognitive load in education. And in, I think it was in 2014, we did a retention study for wilderness first aid courses, took a cohort of students, ran them through a WFA, and then tested some of them at four months, eight months, 12 months. Okay, they forget stuff really quickly. Yeah, the, you know, we knew that. We, so we got the data on that. And then we went back and started going through the curriculum and going, boy, how can we make this simpler? How can we make this simpler? Oh, this is some medical jargon we like that we put in the curriculum. These people don't need to know that. Yep. We, we can make these words simpler. Uh, they don't need a, a semester in Latin to... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> and just, yeah, trying to, uh, especially at that WFA level, reducing the cognitive load, hopefully to give people relevant things that they can retain mm-hmm. uh, and actually do. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, you know, another piece that we put in recently that is, and it, in the wilderness first responder especially, we've started talking about mental health. Mm-hmm. Interesting. When you talk about, when you talk to these trip leaders who are leading these people out, all age groups, but especially these young kids, they'll come in and say, the most challenging thing on my trip was the student with the anxiety attack, that sort of thing. So we've actually started trying to build some curriculum in because there's no really standard training for these trip leaders in that arena. And yeah. uh, they need to know how to manage these patients who are quite common. Yeah, and I would say that's probably even more common these days, just social media, access to information all the time in these, even in some of these remote areas where cell phones is now possible that didn't used to be then. Yeah, I've heard the same stories. They've had a young adult who got bad news, their boyfriend broke up with them, or whatever, or bad family news. And next thing you know, they have a patient who's got some significant issues going on, whether it's anxiety, depression. Some folks have run into, when they're out on guiding services, they've discovered people who, you know, because they usually have like a medical evaluation form before a trip and they don't disclose that they have some mental health issues. And then they don't tell them two days into it that they didn't bring their meds and now they're off their meds. And mm-hmm. now I have to deal with this person with who knows what. So it's, yeah, that's actually a very common and I think it's becoming more so. And it's good that you guys are looking to incorporate that into the curriculum. That's really good. It's certainly think we're, a challenge, but I still think we're kind of bumbling around trying to figure out how best to, uh, to frame that and give people useful tools and information, but uh, working on it. Well, no, and I would, I would argue, you know, as Mike and I both run very regularly in regular urban ambulances, that that training, even for professional EMS personnel, is still very nascent and new and is not as developed as a lot of people would think it is. Just having a conversation about this with one of the paramedics in the system when I was at work the other day. And she mentioned, you know, she never has a problem Call me. Well, we were talking about a recent uh, patient that I had to sedate. He, he was... He was manic. He was up and down and up and down. He'd been fighting with law enforcement. And ultimately, after about 40 minutes, I had to make the decision to chemically sedate him because he was trying to disassemble the ambulance from the inside out. But she mentioned, you know, at any point, people will respond differently depending on who's approaching them, right? She's, she's a retired professional firefighter. She's a volunteer now. Mm-hmm. Uh, she said she doesn't have any problem calming anybody down because she's not a threat to anyone. 
Whereas I stand at six foot two, I'm typically in a uniform when they're dealing with me, right? I'm the example of authority. She's like, I bet I wouldn't have had to do it. I could have probably talked him out of it. No, I'm betting that was not the case in that scenario. But it was a good point, right? And if we don't, I don't think we empower people in general. I can, I can only imagine being on a backcountry trip three days in and having somebody that completely can't handle the situation they're in. And there are no additional resources. So it's a good point. It's, it's, I'm glad to hear that there's effort going into that. I am a huge advocate that I don't care where you're doing medicine or what kind of medicine you're doing. The, the best medicine is prevention, right? It turns out I don't have to come and do a 12 lead if, uh, if you'd been eating well and uh, exercising for most of your life. It doesn't really matter what kind of medicine we're talking about. Prevention is the best cure. So your paper talks a little bit about standards and reaching for a standard. How do we get to a standard in wilderness medicine, especially in a pre-hospital world, right? The professional side of medicine. The, I'll call it the world Sean and I more or less live in. We operate under a medical director. We have state formularies and policies we have to abide by. There's clear structure for how many hours of education, and what we get educated on to hold a particular card, and all of that. How do we move that ball in the more austere world, less front country space? Come on, Todd, fix, fix world hunger for me. Well, yeah, that's the question people have been talking about forever. You know, one of the attempts to get there has been this group called the Wilderness Medicine Education Collaborative, which has been around for about, formerly, I think, for about eight years now, who put out these scope of practice documents for Wilderness First Aid and Wilderness First Responder, which it, they're, the, they're the six biggest programs, schools out there. Wilderness Medicine Training Center, Solo, Knowles Wilderness Medicine, Airy, Desert Mountain Medicine, and uh, what when we started doing that work, what we wanted to do is be able to describe for people what we thought these providers needed to know and the knowledge base and then the skills they needed to practice. And uh, we had been talking with each other informally. I've talked to Dave Johnson from WMA annually mm-hmm. since the early part of the early 2000s. And we get together once a year and what do you teach in? What do you see in? What do you change in? So anyway, we want to describe that. This is what you need to know. This is what you need to be able to do. And one of the important pieces was, uh, especially at the wilderness first aid level, we put in uh, a bunch of negatives, pertinent negatives. This is what you should not be able to do. Mm-hmm. And to really tighten up that skill set. But it's not binding. Mm-hmm. It's documents mm-hmm. out there that people can look at. And uh, we, can't, we can't hold people to those standards. Uh, we can only put them out there. Not unless there's a certifying body that agrees to adhere to it, right? Front country medicine operates basically in the same mantra. Now most of the people, to half of our listeners just left when I started talking about standards and national registries and camps and (laughs) education, getting certified to teach medicine. Like it's kind of a big deal, right? You have to adhere to a bunch of standards, but it's it's self-enforcing, right? Right. And people in the industry are scared of the standard piece. Because yeah. they see regulation, they see bureaucracy, they see cost, they see control, and uh, they don't necessarily see that it's going to change, at least for these schools that, you know, have good quality products, it's, that's not necessarily going to change their product, but they mm-hmm. have all these other things that go along with it. And uh, that's definitely in the background. People are thinking, well, I don't, I don't want to have another hoop to jump through. Right. There's a cost point on a lot of these programs. Who's going to pay for this? If I pass it on to the customer, that all those questions that are out there. I'm thinking more these days that 
is there a route where there's a split between if it's that wilderness EMS level? Yeah, there's got to be some sort of portal there that people step through and you know that they have a certain knowledge base and a certain skill base. But does the recreation person need that? Probably not. Yeah. And that, well, that comes back to our discussion with Dave and the beta test that Sean and I took last year, right? That's where I think the IBSC is attempting to standardize around that. But it came from a need from a, from a certifying body, right? A state asked for their help in developing a standardized test. It's my hope that we move further in that direction. For the, the six people listening, you know that I'm, I'm pretty clear about the fact that the minute you step off an ambulance and walk more than 10 feet from the roadside, the world just changed. And, and Sean and I can tell many a story of, hey, we grabbed this guy off a transport unit that showed up and said, guess what, man, you're going to hike like three miles with us to go get this, <laughs> this patient that fell down. And that their world changes dramatically, right? Even, yeah. even the, the simple things on an ambulance aren't really set up to be carried on your back for multiple miles. I took a life. We back. have to bridge that gap, right? And in once, yeah. <laughs> so did Mike once, once, <laughs> once. <laughs> I, I did it one time, once, and it was only um, because it was a pretty short hike. Yeah, yeah. We have we have lots of mantras now about how if you're having a heart attack in the woods, I guess it was a it was a good run. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think maybe maybe that is. And Sean and I are certainly not in in the trenches in these conversations, we probably run what I would call on the periphery with a lot of folks that yeah. are engaged in these conversations. We'll probably see a bunch of them in April would be my guess. And at least one of them is probably going to say, dude, I listened to your podcast with Todd. Yeah. <laughs> but, but ultimately, maybe that's where we, we need to think about splitting the difference, right? I don't think we need to make it harder for people to get into the woods. In fact, I, I would like to make it easier for people to get into the wilderness and experience not staring at their phone 20 hours a day. I think from a socioeconomic perspective, it's vital that we start getting out into the wilderness again and actually experiencing nature. But also we can't, the aspect of life in the, in the 21st century is really around advances in, in science and advances in technology result in needs for advances in knowledge to leverage that technology. And ultimately, we have to standardize and make sure that we're providing the best level of care we can for those that need the help. So maybe it's the, maybe it's really a focus on the wilderness standard at a state level for the responders as opposed to the recreation leaders that I should really be championing as opposed to just talking about wilderness medicine as a, as a one-trick pony, so to speak. Well, as that group that's doing the paramedic exam, do they do less, not the right word, but lesser certifications? They do one, and I'm going to speak completely out of turn here, and Sean's going to correct me. So the, <laughs> the IBSC is referred to as board certification for pre-hospital providers. They have four pre-hospital certifications for paramedic-level providers right now. One is called a critical care, which is focused on care. This is going to be very hand-wavy, but it's essentially focused on skill set and knowledge required to transport a patient from one facility to another facility that has a critical care level need. They have a flight paramedic, which is probably their most well-known certification. It is, it is a certification. Some of the, the test framework overlaps with the critical care transport, but it is primarily for paramedic providers that are doing interfacility and scene response on helicopters. Both of those, those tests include things like ventilators, blood administration, blood values, gases, you know, things that you typically wouldn't see in a quote-unquote standard paramedic level program. They have a tactical paramedic, which is primarily for, think of it as traumatic 
sudden onset traumatic events where you might be the paramedic at a SWAT team and you need to be very, very good at managing traumatic events. They have something called a traumatic, res- traumatic response. Tactical traumatic responder. That's what it is, which is the, is the equivalent of what you're asking about. So for the tactical medicine piece, if you're a card-carrying paramedic, there is a test for a card-carrying paramedic. You can be board certified in tactical medicine. And they have a certification that is more focused on the EMT level that is specifically around that skill set. And then they've just recently released the wilderness paramedic certification. And that is, that is board certification for a paramedic level provider. I'm happy to send David a note and ask him if they have any plans to do something at the EMT level. I would love to see that happen. I would well, love to help. I think when we that. were talking with him, that was after getting the, the WPC up and running for a while. I think that was what they were looking at next was having like a wilderness responder certification for those who aren't paramedics who also would like to get that an IBSC essentially third party certification mm-hmm. kind of piece. Yeah, uh, but the only thing we do now to help our some folks out is we have some people who take our first responder courses who then work like they work for the park service or some dedicated SAR unit that wants them to have an EMR mm-hmm. and we can bridge them to the EMR now. They yeah, take that's an online, online module and then they can take that national reg test and mm-hmm. get EMR credential based on their woofer course. But it's very few people, and it, but, it's, but it's people who are connected into the systems. They work in the parks. They, they work for some SAR unit that has an obligation to cover an area and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, no. So, and I think that's one of the, that's not a really, I mean, it's kind of a complaint, but it's one of my pet peeves too, is back when I was between, you know, because I've held various WFA and woofer certs from a lot of those different organizations. And it'd be like, I did this woofer in Colorado a couple of years ago. I have to research and, oh yeah, no, we don't accept their card. You have to come through our entire course again. You can't just do a research. Uh, and so, you know, some places were not so keen on reciprocity. I know it, that's, it has definitely improved over the last few years. And I think a lot of it has to do with the, the group of, like you said, like those, the big six come together and kind of looking at like, okay, this is the standard curriculum. So we know that everybody's essentially pretty much for most of it, 90% probably on the same baseline. And yeah, you can come to me with your solo card and I'll recertify you here at a WMA course, which has gotten a lot better. And I know some folks here regionally that have been able to do so when they've come with cards from other places. So that's, that's definitely been a good improvement. Yeah, I think that I would agree with you that doing a national registry-like event for wilderness first responders is probably going to be a bridge too far. Sure, it'd be nice, but I don't, I think for that, that market, that group, that select group of professionals, that it's really probably not going to be necessary. The only thing that I see lacking in that current system is, is, you know, as EMS providers, licensed people, we have annual CE requirements that we have to show that we're doing, that we're keeping up on our knowledge base. And that was one of the things and I think that goes to that knowledge retention piece is I get my woofer card and I don't really have to do anything till I come back for a research. And depending on whose card you have, that could be two, three, maybe four years. And so that, I think, is the only place where you're running into some issues. Because some folks, like if they don't ever see a patient and the whole time their card is current, they're coming back to that research. And I've seen this with some students. It's like, wow, this has totally changed from the last thing. Yeah, it's like, you know, two, three years is a long time in medicine. So there's a lot of things that shift and change that they don't have that CE requirement somewhere in the middle. And I get it. That's it's part of the maintaining the independence of all those organizations. I know like most of them recommend people go out and seek additional training and some offer mm-hmm. additional training for members who've come through their courses, but it's definitely not 
a required thing. And I don't know that, it, well, let's be honest, it probably never will be. But And then lastly, I think you can become certified as a wilderness EMT, those bolt-on modules. <laughs> and I found a, one of the big six who actually runs it all online. So I could be an urban EMT, take their online course, and they're going to send me a card that makes me a wilderness EMT, which, uh, yeah, oh yeah, I, I found it quite bad. I got bad. mine too. Just, just so we're clear, I, I too held my wilderness EMT card for a while until it expired. Yeah. I was a wilderness EMT. And, uh, and it's just one of those things like, wow, it's somebody who's never set foot in the woods before. You sit through 16 hours of online training and you're now a wilderness EMT. It's just one of those that frustrates me because my biggest complaint about a lot of these courses is they focus a lot on some of the improvisation and talking about wilderness things, but they don't really, they don't go into anything with the environment. And that is what separates what we do in wilderness medicine from urban is the environment. That's what makes it wilderness, yeah. not, not the it's, fact that it's... I use two sticks to splint your arm. I've heard you guys talk about this before, and you're, you're singing to the choir here that, uh, <laughs> you know, so many people take wilderness medicine courses, and they, but there's that separate piece of, will they be at all competent in the wilderness, just in the, their living and travel skills, or whatever technical skill they need for that terrain? That gap is, it's always been frustrating for me, uh, because I've seen plenty of people who yeah, they walk around with a wilderness medicine credential and uh, really they, they don't have any wilderness experience or skills. Totally. So when I look at the wilderness paramedic cert, I go, oh, that's great. I can take this test. Uh, yep. What am I going to be like at 4 a.m. on a cold night when I'm sitting next to a patient? Yeah, see, and that's, and that's always my argument too, is, is like, cool, that means you took a test, right? That doesn't mm -hmm. mean you have actually operated in these wilderness or austere environments and you can function in that environment. And I'll say that's one area that I think the, and you probably agree as a, another fellow in the Academy of Wilderness Medicine, you at least had to show and demonstrate experience in a wilderness environment. Now, I mean, to a certain extent, but you had to at least be able to document that you'd spent some time doing wilderness-like activities. Whereas a lot of these other courses, you don't. So even if I went to like the Knowles Wilderness Upgrade for Medical Professionals, I show up with my day pack and we do some training outside. And at the end of the day, I can leave and have a new wilderness EMT card or whatever. But I didn't really do anything in the wilderness. I never had to do overnight with a patient and improvise a shelter or anything necessarily. Some courses might be run differently than others, but that's, mm -hmm. it's, it's the environment that makes the difference. And it's the training in those specific skills that I think some courses are lacking. Indeed. Indeed. Well, you said, you said earlier, we're not singing from the same sheet of music or something similar. And I had this stupid analogy that is now going to make me sound dumb on the internet. But uh, how, do, how do we turn it into a choir? How do we actually get folks to work together to bridge this gap? Because I think, I don't know, this is probably going to be what I'm going to care about for the rest of my life. It turns out I've cared for 20 years about wilderness medicine, and it's pretty hard to not care about something you care about. So yeah, take that one to the bank. That's going to be another audio snippet there it's hard to care about something you or not care about something you care about but well it's got to get better right well what gap are you trying to bridge we have to have a standard right um medicine is i think the ibsc is just the first step in really bridging the path towards saying hey once we're an, a mile or more or whatever the threshold is 10 miles i don't care once we're that far into the woods and it has become to use the military term that sean used earlier right it's as much about the immediate emergency medicine as it is the nursing care level things, that's a different skill set. That's not something you get in paramedic school. That's not something you get 
in class and taking a class on it isn't good enough. But I think to actually, to start providing that higher level of care and this all I should preface or back up and preface my statement with, all I really care about, and this enrages people sometimes, I've never cared about the administrative of an organization. I've never cared about the policy. I've never cared about being the brass in a fire department and writing policies because that's what the insurance company cares about. All I care about is good care for people, right? I care about providing good medicine to people and helping them out in their time of need. So how do we ensure that we're providing the highest level of care as the wilderness professionals, as a group, as a community? And maybe the the organization you mentioned earlier, I forgot the name of it, the uh, the collaboration that's been around for about 12 years. Maybe that's the step, right? Maybe we start writing standards that way. But I feel like there's a lot of, I've heard the argument a lot. Well, the wilderness industry is is largely a for-profit. Knowles is just one of many companies that provides education and does things. But you can make the same argument about the pre-hospital emergency medicine system, right? There's a lot of private ambulance services out there that provide care to communities. There's a lot of agencies that do this for-profit. There are some nonprofit agencies as well, but we seem to have landed on a pretty decent standard for baseline minimum standards for education in what I'll call front country emergency response. I'd really like to see us get to a better place for backcountry wilderness response so that we can continue to. It's not that I think it's a problem and that we don't have it, but we are all going to benefit from having the same baseline knowledge. And we're going to move the industry forward faster by learning from each other as opposed to operating in silos. I just haven't figured out how to, how to crack the nut, so to speak. Yeah. I don't know if I have an answer for that. I, that the girl, oh, man, I was hoping you fix everything yeah. for me. <laughs> you know, the WMEC has been, their scope of practice documents, I think, uh, provide a lot of guidance. They have internal conversations about their programs, program standards, what's being taught, faculty training. So that's going on. I, I don't know how, that, how we would engage more people. I don't know. Did the Maybe I just spend the next 20 years of my life thinking about this and I fail miserably yeah. and never move the ball, right? Yeah. Who knows? Well, well, but I think that group has done, a, done some great work and the stuff they've put up is really standard type stuff. It's just They can't enforce it. But, uh, right. And we've had, you know, when I was part of that at the start of it, we would get people that, who would argue some of our points and that would evolve the scope, mm-hmm. the scope document. So I think that stuff is going on I'd need to know a little bit more about what exactly, I think we have a little more problem definition because we, we're talking about first aid. Well, well let me, I, I think maybe I that's offer the, the answer know. here, right? And it's not the solution. It's the, the problem is within the United States, wilderness medicine outside of those who practice wilderness medicine is not really viewed as, we'll call it a legitimate subset of medicine, right? So there are people, like if you're not a member of the Wilderness Medical uh, association or within really invested yourself in wilderness medicine. Like if you went anywhere else in the U.S. in healthcare, they're like, cool, what's that mean? We don't care. It's a hobby. Right, exactly. It's like, yeah, yeah, ski patrol guys and SAR teams. They don't really understand the level of training. Like most people have no idea how long a woofer course is anymore. Like they're like, what is that? Like a two or three day course? And it's like, (laughs) no, you know, it's like, you're looking at investing an entire week at a minimum. And it's like, oh, wow, really? It's like, yeah, it's a long program. People learn a lot of good skills and they're like, oh, wow. So, but you know, you go places in Europe and wilderness medicine, just because of their culture is much more outdoors invested. You know, I mean, hiking in Britain is a huge hobby. Climbing and mountaineering on mainland Europe is, I mean, there are some countries that that is simply what they're known for is building mountaineers. 
And so in the United States, because this is, I mean, it's a huge country and we have segments where people really get into wilderness medicine, they really understand it and they understand that there is a true subset specialty of people who can provide care in these environments. For the large part, the vast majority of healthcare in the U.S. just doesn't care. And until you see, until you see like a board specialty for doctors in wilderness medicine, like they are, like EMS is a brand new board specialty for physicians now. I mean, before it was just you were an emergency room doc, and then they decided that EMS is specific enough that now there's a board certification for that. And so I, I think until you start seeing a board certification for wilderness medicine, which is going to be obviously very physician centric, you're not going to really see a lot of movement nationally. I think, as you mentioned, you know, the collective there is really doing the lion's share of the work by getting all those big schools that teach this stuff regularly to get on the same sheet of music and teach really probably a 90% common curriculum. Little variances mm -hmm. here and there. But other than that, I mean, for the most part, if I get a, a first responder from Knowles and I get another one from WMA and I have them on a scene with me and I tell them to do something that should be within that scope, I'm fairly certain that either one of them will be able to do it. And so, and that's really, in my opinion, what, what really matters is, and part of it is also like on people like me and Mike, who are on the more wilderness EMS side, understanding what those capabilities are and their limitations. So like Mike said, we still work with a lot of the local SAR teams and a lot of them, most of their members are first aiders, wilderness first aiders. And so knowing that they can't do, like, I can't throw my BP cuff and say, hey, get me some vitals on them. Yeah. But if I have a woofer, I can say, hey, get me a set of vitals. And chances are, they're going to be like, cool, I can do that for you. Right. So you got to be able to know, and that, that, that falls on guys like me and Mike to know what their capabilities and limitations are too, and being able to properly employ them. But uh, there's no, there is no current, I, I guess this will sum up my, my, uh, my problem definition. There's no standards body, more or less. And, and you can, the old school argument, oh, well, every state has their own EMS standards, right? And actually in Virginia, we have certifications. We don't have, or we're licensed, we're not certified, but the state of Virginia has still adopted the national registry standards for education and testing to receive your certification in pre-hospital medicine, right? There isn't a standard that says that if I go to school A, I've met this baseline of education. And that's really what I'm kind of driving at. And I, and I think listening to both of you talk, as what typically happens on this podcast, Sean actually defines what I've said. I just say a bunch of words and then he turns it into English for me. We deal with a lot of folks and, and we spend a lot of time doing medicine on, in, on property that is managed by national land management agencies, right? Parts of the Department of the Interior. There's no standard. You mentioned earlier, folks will say, well, my employer wants me to be certified in X, Y, or Z, but school A versus school B versus school C and the education you receive and the ability to execute against that skill, I've seen it firsthand, man, for 10 years now. Somebody will say, I hold a, a woofer or I hold a, a first aid responder card and their skill set and their comfort is very different. And Sean and I spend a lot of time providing education as well. And it's important that we ultimately get to a baseline because I think, again, I think the IBSC attempt is the, a good first step toward this, but it isn't the panacea, right? And I think the middle ground is where it matters, right? Most things in the woods are orthopedic problems. Most things in the woods are dehydration or hypothermia. They're not Man, if we don't dump, if we don't, if we didn't, what's a good example? Oh, you know, if, we, if we're not getting, you know, whole packed blood cell, or if we're not getting whole blood or we're not getting PRBCs into this guy right now, if we're not intubating him, if we're not doing a cricothyrotomy, he's going to die. Well, yeah, it's kind of the case no matter where you are, right? It's mitigating those things. It's the, the pre-management of such, and it's managing those patients that are going to be there for a while and knowing that they're getting good care that, that I worry about because there is no standard for education right now. Yeah, having done this forever, 
I still can't resolve that sort of conflict in my head of, should we really have some sort of credentialing accreditation mm-hmm. or what we're doing right now, the conversations, what we think are the consistency amongst the programs? And should we go to the, to the bu- bureaucracy side? Should we leave it the way it is now? I've never been able to uh, like uh, come to a definitive statement and be able to give Michael the answer he wants to the question. Well, and again, I think well, if really figured that out twenty years ago, I wouldn't be having this podcast. We wouldn't be having this conversation. So, and, and it's well, also the whole wilderness, the whole wilderness industry, the wilderness education, the guiding. You got that culture in yeah. here, part of it. Mm-hmm. People have resisted accreditation badges. Oh, very much so. Just, just watching how slow it has been to come up with professional guiding credentials in the yeah. U.S. and the avalanche education industry and how mm-hmm. and all a lot of that's anchored in a culture of wilderness. Yeah, yeah. Hoorah, you know. Oh yeah, no. I mean, that's that's an extremely valid point because I mean, if you look back at the early climbers, you know, out there, out there, out west, it was like, no, no, no. I don't care what your sign says. I'm climbing this thing. And so that some of that culture and that spirit carries on. That permeates, um, right? Yeah. yeah. Which I'm, I'm a fan well, of. that's how Yosar right. got started, right? Like they uh, eventually yeah. had to say like, hey, come help us because these yeah. guys weren't going to be told no, right? Yeah. And, and we can't yeah. climb good enough, so we need your help. Yep. <laughs> well, and, and I think that the big thing here is we have to look at who the target audience is for each side of this level of education, right? If you're on the side of wilderness EMS, if you're like Mike and I operating under the direction and authority of a physician in a structured medical response agency, that's different than people who are trip leaders, hike leaders, scout pack leaders, whatever. And the medical mission piece is truly secondary. It's very important, but it's a secondary piece. And so having them educated as a wilderness first responder or, you know, wilderness first aiders at a minimum with the way those programs currently function, I think is probably acceptable, right? When it becomes, if your job is the primary medical responder, then we need to look at, okay, so woofer programs, you also have to sit and take the registry EMR test, and then you can have an official credentialed kind of thing. I'm just saying, as an example, do I think that's the way to go? Probably not, unless you have a jurisdiction that recognizes that level of certification. And you're now getting physician oversight. Because if you're not operating under a physician, right, and you're not dispensing drugs and you're not dealing with a large pharmacological like bag of things beyond essentially OTC-type meds, maybe an EpiPen, then I don't think we really need to develop a national registry-like model for, we'll call them the lay responders, quite the right word, but the lay responder side, the guys that, you know, the guiding and, and we'll say the professional, the professional group leaders I don't think they need something like that. And that's just me personal. But I think what the, the WMEC is doing is the right thing, trying to get a standardized curriculum so that those woofers from the various schools are all learning, again, 90% the same way. I know if you take some stuff down in Florida, you're definitely going to get a little bit more on alligators, like oh. yeah, alligators, maybe <laughs> certain snakes, stingrays, et cetera, right? Because those are things you might see more often. Whereas mm-hmm. if you're in the Rockies, I don't care about your stingray right? It's not a concern for me. I need to know, yeah, about dysentery. Did I filter water? And can I fracture a splint of fracture? It's, it's just different environments tailored a little bit differently on these courses. But I think the core of them is probably close enough that they're essentially they're there. And as Todd, again, pointed out in his paper, 
the curriculum can be standardized across the board. Like they could have a national registry model and a DOT type approved mm-hmm. curriculum. It's all about your instructors. What is really being taught? Mm-hmm. Um, Mike and I used to teach for a school teaching paramedic programs and EMT programs as well as, and I used to teach wellness medicine stuff. You can have that DOT curriculum and there are schools that get people just barely through that curriculum, but they add on all kinds of extraneous things or barely touch on subjects that should have been much more of a core competency. Mm-hmm. So while they might all have the same curriculum in their outlines, really at the end of the day, it's how well was it presented? Did the students actually learn it or was it just, hey, we're coming to the end of the day and I want to get through this PowerPoint because I got to get home on time myself and they just start blazing through some things and it was really not taught very well. So a lot of it is course and instructor dependent. I think the curriculum is probably good as far as the vast majority of the courses. It's, it's the instruction that are you actually getting good quality instruction or not? Yeah, we know that. I mean, you've have to have seen is some guy shows up in the back of your ambulance with a credential and you work with them for a little bit and go, uh, 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 huh, that's interesting. Should I make the joke or not, Sean? I don't know what the joke is, but go for they're, it. They're called firefighters. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll catch hell for that one later. But. Yeah, you will. <laughs> that's for I'm you, kidding. JB. I'm kidding. That was a joke. I'm kidding. Yeah, dude. You know, I also think of this, okay, if we go the route of, if you're going into the, the wilderness EMS system, yeah, be nice if there was some hoop threshold standard. It still comes down to the unit and the unit vetting these people. I mean, we have the SAR unit we have here. People apply to us all the time and we have to vet them through a committee and then we have to orient them to our, the little ways we do our stuff here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and the gear we use. and. Uh, and that's our responsibility. Ultimately, that's the gate. That's the ultimate gate keeping for us. We know <laughs> they show up, that they have certain training, certain background, and we're close, but then we vet them. Yeah. yeah. No, Which, what you just described would be referred to in medicine as medical direction, right? Like your <laughs> medical director usually has a way of standardizing whether or not he's going to let you practice under his license. Maybe that's all we need to reach for, right? If we had direction, if we had a standard, it's really easy to delegate maintenance of skills or or whether or not individuals are allowed to perform activities, but you need the starting point. I guess that's what I'm advocating for. We need the starting point. And it sounds like you've been trying to fix that for 30 years. So it's <laughs> it's going well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, like like you brought up, it's like, yeah, you've had other medics or EMTs in the back of the truck with you where you're like, so yeah, suction, you, you know where the power button is, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, go for it. Where is it again? Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. Okay. And just Come on, Mike, you and I watched, uh, what was it, a couple of years ago with those girls we had and the splint job Yeah, uh, yeah. that what they were attempting on her broken arm and then some ski patrollers attempting to splint some ankles. Um, Todd, did you know if you duct tape two legs together, it's splinted? Like, that's all you got to do. You just duct tape two <laughs> legs together, you're good to go. So it was, yeah. uh, That so. wouldn't meet the scope of practice document standard. No, it wouldn't, right? <laughs> so. But yeah, you're right. It's like, you never know what you're going to see. But uh, I like to think for the most part, just because I've had good experiences with the, the various wellness first aiders, wellness first responders I've run into, the most of them do pretty good, uh, mm-hmm. at least as well as any baseline EMS provider I've witnessed too. You know, at a certain level, they should have some baseline skills. But yeah, I mean, you hand a paramedic a, a blood pressure cuff and a stethoscope and tell him to get a manual BP and it's like, whoa, but my monitor does that. Yeah, it's I've like, got a life pack. But I'll yeah, but I just would like to see you do this manually today. And it's like, uh, 120 over 80. Of course it is, right? Of course. So, yep. so yeah, I, I think the standards 
are getting pretty close there on the on the woofer side. It's and like I said, I don't know that there's ever going to be the answer. Like I said, until somebody wants to jump on that grenade and create the National Registry for Wellness First Responders and Wellness First Aiders, which I personally I, I just wouldn't advocate for that. Having a no. standardized curriculum, I think, is as close as anybody's going to get. And again, I, th- I think they're they're attempting to do so, and I, and I definitely applaud their efforts in doing it. But again, I think it's you just got to look at this, those two communities and what their what their requirements are, and understand that maybe they. They, the training they have and everything else is appropriate for them. And, and Todd brought up another good point is, okay, so now I've, I've graduated my Knowles Woofer course. I'm now being hi- hired on. I'm working for River Rafters Extreme. That employer needs to make sure that my skills are proficient. They should have like their senior responder saying, all right, hey, man, let's, let's take you out. Let's see you do this. And a good example of this, Mike, is you remember, well, for the last couple of years, all the new personnel that would come out there to the park yeah, would have a skills day, yeah. right? where they'd come out and they'd have to demonstrate basic proficiency and patient assessments and splinting and things just because you show up with an EMT card or a first responder card. That doesn't mean you've actually done any real work. It just means you passed the test. Yeah. So that's a good point is the people that hire them as guides and such definitely need to be vetting them better and not just assume that they have the card and they're good. So what you're saying is we need more lawsuits because lawsuits drive change. What we need is more lawsuits. See, that's well, and this is, this is where I, and this is where I get why Part of the that the woofer community and such doesn't want to go super regulated because it allows them to stay more on that Good Samaritan providing basic first aid side. Yeah. And it provides a little more flexibility and clearance to do work, right? Whereas you yeah. and I, if we mess up, that's, hey, you are a certified licensed professional. Mm-hmm. That's a different perspective. And th- I mean, just think about liability insurance for people. It's like, for most of these companies, it's like, hey, if you get hurt, it's not our fault. We'll do our best to help you, but you yeah. can't sue us because you get hurt. Whitewater rafting gets inherently dangerous. So, yeah. I mean, You're right. I mean, liability insurance is not super expensive, but nonetheless, I get your point. We've been talking for over an hour. We haven't solved anything. So uh, <laughs> I feel like this has been a great episode. Todd. Yeah, so, you know, we really appreciate you coming on, Todd, talking to us and your experience and background in the woofer community. It's fantastic. No, great. I, I've enjoyed it and I've been, been enjoying listening to your podcasts. And- Tell your friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We we need more friends. Well, with that, uh, as we typically do, we're just going to abruptly stop talking now and turn the podcast off. So, Sean, any last thoughts? Uh, no, not for me. I think this is a great conversation. All right. Okay. Todd, anything else you want to mention? Uh, let me know if you get any hate mail over this. And uh, <laughs> oh, don't worry, respond to it. I have a funny feeling since you reached out, that you're going to be hearing from us in the future in general. Yeah, we're going to be working together. I I'm hopeful that this will result in a relationship in the community and, and maybe we can be the driving force to start forcing conversations between folks. You happen to know a few more folks than we do. So yeah, <laughs> we'll definitely let you know. All right, everybody with that, uh, see you later. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for show topics, you can send us an email at the show at emsonthemountain.com or hit us up on social media. We can be found on Facebook and Instagram at EMS on the mountain, Twitter at EMS OTM, or you can engage with us and a whole community of Wilderness EMS professionals at locals.com slash Wilderness EMS. Until the next episode, thanks for joining us. And until we see you on the mountain, train hard, be safe, and do good work.